Welcome back to Reply Guys. I am so excited this week to be talking to someone whose work I've been reading. Um, and we're going to talk about the Supreme Court today, which is a you know depressing topic. But I'm excited that we can have someone on the show who is really smart and um, has been doing journalism about uh, SCOTUS and its failures for a long time. Um, welcome to the show, Chris Geidner. Hi, thank you for having me. So, okay, what? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, That's like, pretty much how all of these conversations start. <laughs> just like, what new horrors await? Um, why? Uh, <laughs> yeah, just <laughs> so. How are we here? And yeah, where are we going? <laughs> yeah, um, are we all gonna die? If so, when? Um, to be or not to be? That is the question. Um, so, anyway, you know. I, I think a lot of people have recently become uh, aware of how bad SCOTUS can be and like the, you know, the out of control power that they have. And, you know, I've been noticing, you know, that people have really shifted their view because I think a lot of people of a more liberal persuasion think about the Supreme Court or have up till now as something that is, you know, on the whole, like, pretty good for liberal and or progressive causes. Um, you know, we have, you know, like same sex marriage and, you know, um, ending school segregation, at least, you know, ending legal school segregation. Um, so, you know, what has it been like for you to see that shift in the way that people are thinking about it? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that like, you're not you're not wrong <laughs> first of all whatever not just you but everybody <laughs> like you the way that you're feeling is not wrong um i mean we are in a position now where uh for a long time for for most of people under 50s lives they've thought of the court as being at worst sort of this institution that will uh jump in when needed <laughs> that that before things get too bad they'll jump in and protect people um there are some areas um in the the past 20 years 30 years that have gotten worse and worse um sort of in an incremental way um things like qualified immunity that allow sort of police to to act without um without repercussions um they're certainly in areas when it comes to corporate rights the supreme court has has long been protective of corporate interests uh, but uh on the whole the the court sort of kept this um vision at least in the public that they that they were there for everybody um because of as you said sort of there are these great highlights that everybody turns to like brown versus board of education and then obergefell uh for like times when they stepped in to protect people um 
But now we we have this court that not only is a majority conservative, I mean, we've had that, but like before you had like for a long time, you had Anthony Kennedy who was in the middle and uh, he was a conservative, but on a handful of issues, primarily social issues, he was a California conservative um, and on social issues, he sort of uh, did move more toward the left than some of uh, the other other conservatives out there. And then even after that, you had sort of uh, John Roberts at the center, who is a solid conservative, but is also an institutionalist. So when he would take conservative steps, they were even they, they were small steps like he he would probably agree with the end result that most conservative most of the most conservative people want. But he would do it in like 20 steps. Um, but now we've got five justices who don't care about that <laughs> and yeah. they are willing to take 20 steps at once. And when you have uh, Justice Thomas and Justice Alito joined by these three justices appointed by Trump, uh, Justice Gorsuch and Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Barrett, um, they're basically because it only takes five votes. Uh, of the nine to do something at the Supreme Court, they don't even need John Roberts in agreement. And we've seen a few times where like they'll do something without him or in spite of him, even he he's written some dissents. Um, and, and that's why we're seeing sort of this change is that there there's nobody left. I mean, to the extent there's anybody left, it's, it's a time when, uh, when Neil Gorsuch or Brett Kavanaugh also agree with the liberals and John Roberts that that we need to slow down, but otherwise they're they're going to take as conservative a step as they want. And obviously the the prime example of that this term was was the Dobbs case and the end of Roe versus Wade. So, you know, I think that it's, you know, it's been a few weeks since the Dobbs ruling came down and now people are starting to talk about, um, you know, will this court hear a something like a fetal personhood case? What do you think the prospects are for that based on what you've seen from this court so far? So far? I mean, I, I would never say never um, because we've 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 been proven that that we can't um i think that the the court is a ways away from that um given the the current majority um there there certainly were um elements of n not only john roberts opinion or not only alito's opinion for the court, but also in Brett Kavanaugh's opinion, and certainly in in Robert's opinion and in the dissent, that uh, would suggest that that they do not think that there is a federal um, a, a, a like the specific thing that Alito says in the opinion is the Constitution takes no position either way. Yeah. Um, so. Um, while Clarence Thomas might feel differently, I don't think there are are the votes on the court now to to sort of not only overturn Roe, but then go the other direction and say there's actually a right. But that said, 
the the thing that Alito did say in the Dobbs decision is this idea that like all it takes is a legitimate interest uh, to uphold a restriction on abortion. And that legitimate interest includes things like caring about fetal protection. Um, and so in some ways, practically, you don't really need a a personhood. The only the only things that are are out of uh, question with a personhood amendment are, are things like like direct murder charges and stuff like that. Um, but the the outside of that, there there already are state laws that that say that um, that basically that for for purposes of um, of uh, criminal statutes, like if you kill a pregnant mother, you can uh, basically be charged with 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 two killings. There, there's I think it's 18 states that already have uh, laws like that. Um, and so, like, there, I don't think we're at a point where there's going to be a personhood ruling that would ban states from allowing abortion, um, but in terms of states that want to restrict things as fully as they can, I think that they've already been given the go-ahead to do that. I mean, a lot of people talking about, you know, so those sort of the potential implications and also, you know, what may come next have been, you know, speculating about what could happen to IVF. Well, will that, will IVF remain legal? You know, are we going to see... We're already seeing people go to jail for miscarriages, but is that going to become right. way more prevalent? What are some of the ways that you think this could I go? Think, I think they are. I think that that is a, a real concern. It's a legitimate concern. It's something that I've written about. It's something that I've been been. It is one of one of my my um, refrains now is this idea that like we have lots of evidence under row how pregnancy was policed and criminalized and pregnancy outcomes were policed and criminalized. Um, now they've been given the go ahead from the Supreme Court to go even further. And so, um, I mean, the, the most common cases that we'd seen under row related to, to drug use um, and sort of uh, criminal charges related to a uh, pregnant person who um, is is accused of harming their 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 their, their fetus um, through uh, their use of drugs. Uh, but there are lots of other situations. If you there's there was a a, a brief. Um, I'm forgetting the the name of the organization. It's the Association of Pregnant Women. The the National Advocates for Pregnant Women, I think, is the name. Um, they had a brief at the Supreme Court in the Dobbs case that uh, details their research of more than 1,600 such cases that investigated or criminalized uh, pregnant people under row. Um, and so we're certainly going to see. I mean, it's things like there was. Um, that there have been cases of like people who uh, shot at a pregnant woman and uh, the child was harmed and they were charged with with uh, murder. There are cases where even the pregnant 
the pregnant woman getting in a fight yeah. with somebody um, has been charged because they should have known of the the damage, the risk that they were putting uh, their fetus in. Um, and so those sorts of things, like we've already seen how the state is going to use its prosecutorial apparatus to go after uh, pregnant people. And now they've got sort of free reign for that even to, to, to be um, an attempt to violate their, their abortion ban. I mean, to me, I, it just seems like, you know, it, it seems I'm trying to think about how to say this in a uh, politically correct fashion, but I can't. So I'll just say it seems insane to even get pregnant on purpose in one of these states. I mean, obviously, you know, people want to start their families and like, I'm sure I would do the same thing in that position. It's not easy to uproot your whole life, but I mean, you know, miscarriage is very common. Ectopic pregnancies are really common too. I mean, it's like one in 50, which is not nothing, you know, but like a lot of people who... No, that's hugely yeah, common. I yeah. mean, that, that, like, I think that there's there's a, a problem. Um, I mean, and it, it comes out bluntly of the fact that like so many of these decisions and so many of these laws and so many of the underlying rationale for them was written by people who are not pregnant and will never be pregnant. Yeah, and, and I, yeah. they like and not even in like the the easy sense of like, oh, so they don't care about it, but it's just like they literally don't know. Yeah, it's and, so dumb. And they they don't understand how how just how rife pregnancy is <laughs> and, and that once you start policing pregnancy you're policing a lot of things that that are not intended that that are truly not even the intent of like the lawmaker who passes the bill who hates abortion yeah uh, but the problem is that you have these laws that are written so vaguely because they were written by people who didn't really think Roe was going to be overturned and were just wanting to pass as strong of anti-abortion bills as they could. And now they're having to deal with the consequences of it. And that's like the the Ohio case that we, we saw last week. Yeah. And I'm assuming that you're referring to the t 10 year old rape victim that had to cross yeah. state lines to get an abortion. And, and it's just I mean, the response to that has been nuttier than anything I could have imagined. Like, here's what I thought was going to happen was that they were all going to come out and say, you know, the basic conservative, horrible garbage of like, well, you know, this is an incredibly sad thing that happens, but the baby doesn't deserve to be punished, which has been the standard right. line from these theocratic lawmakers. But instead, they're like, trying to go after the doctor, um, you know, both in terms of like directing harassment towards her. And also I think that the, uh, attorney general of Ohio said that he's, or he or she, I don't know the gender of this person, um, going to, uh, like look into potentially even charging this doctor with something. Um, well, that was the, yeah, the Indiana attorney general uh, gotcha. looked into charging the Indiana doctor, the Ohio attorney general was the one saying like, Oh, this isn't covered by our laws. Oh, Why that is the Ohio the attorney general. That absolute airhead that was testifying before Congress. That's the Ohio attorney general saying, you know, 
that this what the procedure that the 10 year olds had did not qualify as an abortion is that well yeah there's there's also that claim i mean like so i mean what i've looked at like i mean he was saying just that like it would be covered by the exception for the the life or health of the mother but like the the exception is very narrow in the ohio heartbeat bit the six-week ban bill and it it they, when you look back at the time when the law was passed uh, in 2019, they certainly weren't talking about like, oh, here are all these exceptions. This protects lots of people. Anybody who would have like it was basically this like major bodily functions test that like is very, very narrow. Yeah. And but like then he claims this. But the problem is the these these anti-abortion activists and officials who have for the past decades been passing laws saying they're very broad are now trying to claim like, oh, any time that a situation is unpopular, any time that their law is going to have a horrible result, they're now saying, oh, well, that's not what we meant. And that's the other thing, that testimony in Congress. Like, they're like, oh, well, we're not talking about that when we say it. And it's like, well, no, look at the laws that you wrote. Like, you wrote these intentionally vague laws. And that's the other part is that when you have those intentionally vague laws, it doesn't matter what these people say. Yeah. It doesn't matter because like if it, it like it doesn't even matter that the Ohio AG goes on Fox News and says that because the Ohio AG isn't making the decision. Yeah. Like it is the county prosecutor in Franklin County who's going to decide what to do with this case. And the attorney general of Ohio, if he wanted to issue an attorney general's opinion that's legal, that says this is how I believe this law should be interpreted, it's still wouldn't necessarily be the law of the state because the Ohio Supreme Court would have the final say. But like, at least that would be an example of him doing something that is like under his legal authority. But outside of that, it's just talk. And the doctors and medical providers and parents of young children um, or, or rape victims themselves, like they're not able to make decisions that they are exempted from these laws and be sure of it when you've got criminal penalties on the other side. So, you know, we've been reading these terrible stories um, that are coming out of women who need abortions for medical reasons. Uh, several of the stories have been either ectopic pregnancies or um, the fetus it dies. I don't know what the medical term is. Is non-viable. Yeah, non-viable. And, you know, then um, the body is doing like a, you know, like an incomplete miscarriage. And um, yeah. these abortion drugs are medically necessary or, or surgery is medically necessary in order to prevent, uh, you know, sepsis or hemorrhaging, you know, and, you know, it seems like what's happening now is like the way that they're deciding, you know, is the mother's life in danger is like, like are her vitals crashing? Like is death right. imminent, it's like right? actual now. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, some of these people will for sure die uh, because that's the thing about letting someone get to death's door is not always going to work out. So like, you know, can, can their families sue, you know, like either the doctors or the, you know, 
the, the state governments that, you know, for basically like, um, you know, putting, putting their loved ones in danger and, and, and causing death in some cases. I mean, there's certainly going to be litigation and there's going to be, I mean, the thing that will happen is that there will try to be litigation against the state, that, that this was a, uh, a foreseeable result of, of these laws. Um, but like there, there's lots of state immunity for prosecution on things. There's lots of exceptions and like, it's very much on a state by state basis. Um, a lot of laws like specifically exempt a pr what's called a private right of action. Um, ironically, like over over the past several decades, like conservatives have tried to get rid of a private right of action in like civil rights laws and stuff like that. So that like you don't have the ability to personally sue and you have to rely on happening to have a state government that's in in alignment with you when this horror befalls you. Um, but then on the other side, now we've started to see like with Texas SB8 and the Oklahoma law, these these civil enforcement actions, private lawsuits that that basically the the other side is able to bring. Um, and there certainly are going to be questions about, um, I mean, litigation against doctors who don't perform like that. They're going to say, look, you were allowed to perform this procedure under the law because this is what it says. And you refused to. And my wife died. Yeah. Um, you're, you're going to have those cases and they will say, I mean, they will most likely argue their defense will be the law. Their defense will be that they did not have a clear right to perform an abortion in that situation under the law. And that the risk of criminal penalty is why they didn't uh, perform perform that abortion. Um, and a lot of those cases, I would imagine that that doctor will win. I mean, um, I mean. It's just like I'm imagining for doctors right now, like if I were a doctor, like an OBGYN, I would just get out of the business right now. Or, well, or, that's what's happening. I mean, yeah. that, that's the other thing is like when people when 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 uh, A.G. Yost, the Ohio A.G., said like she didn't have to go to Indianapolis, it was like, well, you rushed. He literally filed in court. So they had this heartbeat bill, the six week ban bill since 2019. It was on hold by a court because Roe versus Wade <laughs> made it unconstitutional. Literally within the hour that Dobbs came down, he went to court and filed a motion to have the injunction list lifted so that the six week ban could be enforced. And so he's the reason why the six week ban was in effect immediately for that 10 year old girl. Damn. And for him to then say like, oh, well, there's an exception and she shouldn't have had to leave. The problem is the, the six week ban was in effect in the state already. And so like clinics, while I, I don't know if any Ohio clinics had closed, like 
I mean, what we saw in Texas is that that like so dramatically uh, decreased the ability of them to perform services that like certainly over time you're going to have clinics close and doctors aren't going to want to operate in the state. They're not going to locate there. So like over time, it's going to be even less available, even within whatever is legal in the place. Yeah. And so when you say there's an exception for this, like who knows like where the near maybe Maybe the Indianapolis doctor, Dr. Bernard, I believe is her name, uh, was the closest doctor who could safely perform uh, the, this procedure on a 10-year-old girl. Um, and, and, I mean, it, it's just, it's, it's really scary to think about, like, what, I, I mean, we, we haven't even talked about, I mean, the fallout, part of the fallout from that, um, that the, uh, colleagues at, at Grid News had written about was the fact that like even abortion training in medical schools. So you're going to have like in half of the country in 10 states as of now, like the question will be like, will their curriculum even include abortion? Are we going to start seeing laws like we saw like equivalent abortion equivalents of like the CRT bills yeah. that like ban the teaching of abortion. Oh, I'm sure they will. I'm states. sure they will. will. Yeah. And so like, I mean, it, there, there is sort of like this ripple effect that like, yeah, if you have exceptions that only allow for like this limited number of abortions, are they really exceptions if there's nobody to perform the abortion? Yeah, that's a great point. Okay. So I want to kind of do a mental exercise here. Are you down to go okay. on a journey? Let's, okay. Let's do it. All right. I want you and listeners can do this as well to imagine that we had a president of the United States that truly cared what happened here (laughs) and a Congress that was functional and worked for people instead of special interests, really any corporate interests. So, okay, let's, let's, you know, this, this beautiful, uh, this beautiful world or even just a slightly functional world what could Congress and Joe Biden actually be doing here? Yeah, I mean, there there are a lot of possibilities. I mean, the one of the the first things would be repealing the Hyde Amendment, um, so that that federal funds could be used for abortion, um, pro- providing protection. The 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 um, I forget the the name of the bill, but the the Freedom to Travel Act, yeah, um, which in, in in reality it should be just reinforcing something that that most likely is already constitutionally protected, uh, but it's sort of a, a a belt and suspenders approach that like would guarantee and would would make it so that it's explicit uh, for abortion related protections. Um, provide, I mean, the the idea of of uh, providing protections for abortions on federal lands, um, the idea of providing protections if uh, tribal authorities um, were to allow abortions on tribal lands, um, the, um, I mean, the the concept of, I mean, the, then, then 
I mean, we're on a wild journey. So while we're on a wild journey, I mean, there's also like Supreme Court reform and looking at the idea of either having a mandatory retirement age or adding to the court. Um, or even to- like, um, you know, I, I learned a couple years ago after the, the death of the notorious RBG, more notorious than ever now, really. Um, but uh, the Congress can actually rein in the power of the court with legislation and like yeah okay so yeah. <laughs> i mean yes they can. there's jurisdiction there are jurisdiction stripping bills um i mean I, like i'll be honest like there there's like always discussion of jurisdiction stripping bills but like it's never really gone anywhere on either side um because it would be really weird um and it would potentially cause a constitutional crisis um, because they, there would be questions about like, I mean, there, there's it, I guess it's not chicken in the, in an egg when we have three branches, but like whatever the three version of that is, like if you have a, if the Supreme court has authority for judicial review and can review the constitutionality of laws passed, how do you pass a law that says that the court can't review certain things? Um, and, and I mean, but they, they're like, there's lots of things written there. There are plenty of smart people who think that jurisdiction stripping bills are constitutional. Um, and like, in terms of like, what could you do? Like, yes, you could say the court, like we're passing a, a uh, national bill protecting um, travel, protecting federal lands, protecting medication abortion under FDA regulations. And we're also stripping uh, the Supreme Court of Jurisdiction to review this legislation. I mean, like, one of the things that I've been thinking about here, like, it almost seems like we just I'm thinking about this case that's coming up that I'd love for you to talk about more versus Harper, but we're basically we're going <laughs> to yeah. see, you know, whether it's this case or, you know, some other case down the pike in the next couple of years here, you know, basically the Supreme Court just cementing permanent Republican power, even beyond what they have already done. And like, yeah, I don't I mean, yeah, they- go ahead. Sorry. You're you're not no not at all <laughs> you're you you're not wrong to like have that fear. Um, I think that there. I mean, the the fact of the matter is that the Supreme Court before this this five justice uh, reactionary majority existed. Um, a key thing that that John Roberts has supported is pulling back the right of the federal government to involve itself in election decisions. Um, and that, that started with the Shelby County decision that got rid of DOJ's uh, preclearance formula, which was basically that if any state was, if any of the preclearance states or jurisdictions were to make any change to their voting laws, they, before they went into effect, DOJ had a chance to look at them. Um, and so when you got rid of that, you started seeing all these changes in those states with to add voter ID to do things. Um, then on top of that, you also have 
um, a Supreme Court that has restricted um, the ability to challenge gerrymandering, to challenge partisan gerrymandering, and to challenge uh, even racial gerrymandering. Um, and now, what Moore versus Harper would do is um, one of the areas that remains to bring challenges is in the state Supreme Courts. You can, you like before, sort of you went to the federal courts for your civil rights challenges. Like there was this after Shelby County uh, resurgence of going to state Supreme Courts for your um for, for challenges to voting restrictions and voting laws and redistricting. Um, what Moore versus Harper does is takes the provision in the Constitution that says that the state legislature is responsible for choosing the time and manner of elections, federal elections, and says that what that means is that only the state legislature and that state courts aren't able to review the state legislature. Now, that truly is an absurd chicken and egg situation, because obviously, when the Constitution was written, they were not presumed, like, it's not like state legislatures were just found out in the states. It's not like you just like find a state legislature in the wild. Yeah. Like, a state legislature is formed by a state constitution, and that state constitution provides for a judiciary and provides for sort of their version of judicial review under the state. And so any state legislature that exists within a state exists within its constitution. And so there's the, the independent state legislature theory, which is this idea that underlies Moore versus Harper, is this idea that when the Supreme, when the Constitution, U.S. Constitution said that state legislatures choose the time and manner of elections, they were that was the the U.S. Constitution saying that only they and that that nobody else could could review it. And so the state Supreme Court can't review it. If that were to win, it would really cut off a, a I mean, it would be a, an absurd ruling. It would be a dramatic ruling. And it, it would it would 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 cut off one of the last real strong efforts, strong methods that people have to challenge uh restrictions on voting. I mean, it seems to me that, you know, like if the power of this court is not checked in some way, you know, in some major way, really, like we are looking at, you know, right. permanent Republican control and the way that that's looking like it is, is just full-blown fascism at, at some point, you know, if it continues well, now, to escalate. What, yeah. I will give you one, the, the little half glimmer of hope that I can give in Moore versus Harper is that there are people who do think that the court took this case to like shut this down, that it is like so absurd and fringe that they like they're sick of getting these lawsuits because because it is unresolved technically like people bring it all the time and in a lot of these 
like voting cases, the court ends up needing to at least consider the case. Like they can summarily reverse it. They can just deny cert in the case. So decide not to hear a case. Um, but in a lot of these cases, they come up uh, through a there, there is a, a method of review for court cases for um, for redistricting challenges that are um, it goes initially through to a three judge panel at the district court level. Normally, district court trials are heard by one judge, but for some of these challenges, they're heard by a three court panel um, voting cases, and then they automatically go to the Supreme Court for next. They don't go to the, the Intermediate Court of Appeals. So because of that, the court ends up getting a lot more of these cases than they otherwise would. And so there is a theory, like from even some like very, very smart professors on the left and, and uh, advocates on the left who think like it is good for the court to take this case and get rid of the independent state legislature theory because it's it's stupid it's taking up time and money to litigate and like let's get rid of it my my counter to that is why would you ever risk going to this supreme court yeah like that that's my count they didn't go so i mean like you can argue like well the courts accepted the case so let's like hope for the best by like wish casting that we think they're just going to toss it out. But I mean, like they, so there is that glimmer of hope that like the reason why the court took this case is that like most of the justices want to get rid of this absurd theory. I would thank you for, for offering that optimism. I would say that I, I, I don't really think it's probably going to go that way. You obviously know way more about it, but it's, uh, you know, to me, I don't know how it's going to turn out. Yeah. I will tell you, like, as opposed to a lot of, like, I would have told you how, like the EPA case was going to turn out. I would have told you how, like the, 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 any voting rights case is going to turn out that has to do with federal voting rights. Um, but like, I, I do think that like, I, I want to see like how the oral arguments in this case go before I would like venture, I guess how it's going to turn out. That makes sense. But I, I do agree like with the idea that like, I don't, I wouldn't have chosen to bring this court, this court, this case. Yeah, it's well, we will, we will see. We will uh, await this news. Um, so you mentioned the EPA case. Um, you know, first of all, what does that case do, and uh, or that ruling? And second of all, like. You know, what's happening with the Supreme Court and our administrative state right now? Well, that's I mean, so that's the thing. Like, it turned out the the EPA case could have gone a lot worse okay. um, on the actual EPA level. Um, what they said was that the way that the court did or the way that the EPA did tried to regulate greenhouse gases under the Clean Air Act was was not specifically authorized by the Clean Air Act. They didn't say that the EPA didn't have the authority to regulate greenhouse gases. They didn't say that Congress couldn't pass a law that specifically allowed broad things. Um, so, like, from that 
perspective, I mean, like the EPA's take that day, like the administrator came out and was like, we're not banned from doing these sorts of regulations. We're not banned from like going back to the drawing board and figuring out how we can do what we can do. Um, so that's that's the good news. Um, the bad news, the two parts of the bad news are like they did get rid of the plan that was in place, but it was a weird case because like the EPA and the Biden administration had already said they weren't putting in place that plan itself. Like, so it was a weird decision because it, it wasn't, uh, it, it really wasn't a live case. Um, and the court sort of stretched what's called its, its standing and mootness doctrine in order to like actually decide it, to decide whether or not there was, there's a constitutional re requirement that there's a case or controversy. Um, but what they did and what's bad and what takes us to the administrative state more broadly is um, they used this case to expand an issue that was discussed in uh, the, the OSHA case about the vaccine or test mandate, uh. Uh, this major questions doctrine. Um, and what it says uh, is that even if there is a law that is passed by Congress that arguably gives an agency the authority to um, pass regulations in an area, that if we, the Supreme Court, decide that it's a major question that affects commerce, that affects, like, they have some language about, like, what that means, like, that basically, like, transforms the marketplace, um, that, that, that Congress needs to specifically authorize that, that Congress doesn't allow agencies to just like make major decisions on major questions without specific explicit authorization. And this major questions doctrine evolves from a thing called the non-delegation doctrine. I mean, the idea of the non-delegation doctrine is basically th this idea that, that Congress is in charge of passing the laws and they're not allowed to just delegate it down to the judicial branch and the executive branch. Um, but where the major questions doctrine sort of popped through the ground and it effectively allows um, what now we have, the, this conservative majority, to say at any point that some action of the executive is so major that they weren't allowed to do it in in unless Congress specifically explicitly authorized it. Mm, yeah, which could dramatically uh, limit what a, a president was allowed to do. Yeah, and I mean, it seems like it's you know, I mean, it's just totally unrealistic for Congress to be managing the you know, the day-to-day -day operations of these agencies who, you know, employ, you know, scientists sometimes and are experts in yeah. things that Congress is not, you know? Well, and the, I mean, the idea is like, I mean, think about it. When you, when you pass like a broad law that's, that's covering an area like that has to do with regulation or allowing certain actions or disallowing certain actions in the marketplace, um, the Congress sort of passes it intentionally so that it's specific enough so that what they're 
allowing and requiring and permitting is clear, but broad enough and and vague enough that it allows the agency to deal with the fact that like reality is going to change over time yeah. and they're going to need to to regulate something that didn't exist. Um, say, I don't know, COVID-19. Yeah. And the, 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 but like what the major questions doctrine does is like, if something big happens that changes how that agency would be operating, like the Supreme Court will have the ability to say that's too major, <laughs> that, that that that's too big. And Congress needs to pass a new law in order to allow the the agency to take action on that. And so, in effect, it, it's really a, a pro-conservative position only, like it only ratchets one way because it, it limits agencies from regulating new things, which almost always is going to be something that liberals want to do and not that conservatives want to do. Yeah, unless unless it is regulating things like what people are allowed to do with their relationships and their bodies. Um, so kind of a, a... Those won't be major questions. Yeah, yeah. So. Don't worry. Yeah, a big a, a little segue here. So um, I think you mentioned in our conversation right before we started recording... Um, that, you know, the Supreme Court may have, have their eye on um, some cases that will uh, affect our, our transgender friends. Can, can you talk a little bit about what's happening there? Yeah, I don't think we're quite at the Supreme Court level yet, but there's because there have been so many anti-trans laws passed uh, over the past two years, there's there are lots of cases um, that are challenging uh, either regulations or either pro-trans regulations from the Biden administration or anti-trans laws uh, from various states. And those are making their way through the courts. Lots of the most extreme laws um, have almost all been enjoined or even policies. I mean, in the case of, I mean, in, in Texas, uh, Governor Abbott's uh, policy to investigate uh, families helping their children with transition, uh, those have been blocked by the courts. Um, there um, have been other other anti-trans laws that have been blocked. Um, but just like last week, there was a there's a lawsuit from some conservative states that's attempting to block uh, the Biden administration's uh, Title IX policies, which um, having to do with transgender people, which we had the, the Supreme Court case Bostock a few years ago that said that the definition of sex under Title VII uh, included transgender people, included gender identity, that the definition of sex includes gender identity and sexual orientation. And so the ban on sex discrimination in Title VII also bans sex dis sexual orientation discrimination and gender identity discrimination. Um, since Title IX has existed, it has interpreted its definitions to be in accordance with Title VII. Um, and so the Biden administration passed um, regulations after Bostock saying that Title IX is to be interpreted the same way as, as sex in Title IX, the same way as sex in Title VII. 
Um, but a bunch of conservative states sued and they said, like, this is too different. This shouldn't they should have to go through the full note and comment period in order to do this. Um, and they actually got an injunction from a trial judge in Tennessee uh, on Friday. And so the policy has been put on hold for now. Um, and I mean, I think like in normal times, I would think that that ruling would be stayed pending appeal and would be able to go back into effect. But who knows, because that'll go to the Sixth Circuit, which is very conservative, and then it'll go to, to this Supreme Court. So, um, I mean... If if the I mean, there's still a, a five justice majority for the Bostock decision um, because Justice Gorsuch wrote that decision. Um, so and, and Chief Justice Roberts joined him along with the then four liberals. Um, but so there there still are three Democratic appointees and Chief Justice Roberts and Gorsuch for the Bostock decision. And so it, it would seem like that would still be safe and that they would likely um, get knocked down uh, at some point. But this is the problem when we're dealing with a court that has so many Trump judges at the lower level, not just the three at the Supreme Court, is that like. The court system takes time, and there are these really sort of uh, scary rulings that limit um, pretty clear rights under constitution, pending or existing constitutional law that just are not paid attention to by lower court judges. I, you know, I, I read, um, you know, some of the things that I, I believe it was Clarence Thomas said that they wanted to. Uh, revisit in, in light of the uh, right to privacy, you know, not being a thing or not being, you know, sort of constitu constitutionally enumerated in the way that uh, they, you know, were interpreting things in that in that Dobbs ruling. But, you know, like it, the, he explicitly, you know, targeted um, same sex marriage. You know, do, do you think that there's a risk there that they would actually get rid of that? I mean, he like specifically targeted contraception and sodomy laws and the decision that ended sodomy laws, Lawrence versus Texas and marriage um, in his dissent as part of his view that the entire field of substantive due process, uh, which includes privacy, like should just be tossed out. Um, now, the majority opinion uh, from Alito said, this doesn't include those. Um, this is just about abortion because abortion deals with potential life. Um, however, at the same time, the entire underpinning of Alito's ruling is this idea that um, the, the substantive due process rights are found by uh, looking at uh, historical practice, by looking at what was protected in history. Um, and so certainly, if you look through the, the 20 pages of his Roe decision, his Dobbs decision, uh, that goes through the history back from like the 1300s um, about abortion, like if you did that for for contraception or uh, sodomy laws or or marriage, you could certainly at least make
make if you want to make the case like he made, um, which like obviously was also questioned by historians. But certainly if you want to look for <laughs> evidence to support the idea that it's not a part of our history or traditions, you could. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so like, it, it, is it safe? No. Does it seem like there are the votes there now to overturn it? Also, no. But that doesn't mean it wouldn't change if there's a huge effort from the right wing to make overturning marriage their next thing. Like, I think that that's the reality is that, like, if the right wing decides to make something its issue, um, I, I think that the court could end up being being wishy-washy on it and, and change. It does seem like the right is extremely responsive to their activist base. Like I'm looking at the, you know, the January 6th insurrection. OK, you know, like, yeah, a lot of people there were wackos. And, you know, certainly there was just plenty of people that, you know, were they doing really anything else? Uh, you'd just be like, this person is just completely ridiculous. But, you know, the the Republican Party has responded by doing a lot of what those people wanted, you know, passing all these restrictions, additional restrictions on voting. And I, I think it's like 19 states and, you know, the, and just, you know, the stuff like this in independent state legislature theory. And like, it, it seems like, you know, what the nuttiest faction of Republican voters wants, it eventually, you know, makes its way up into something that is law. And I am, I guess, agreeing that, you know, like, should the should the uh, activist base of the GOP, you know, really start pushing on any of these contraception, same-sex marriage, pretty good chance that, you know, the courts and the, um, you know, Congress will respond accordingly and, and do what those people right. want, you know, unlike the Democratic I mean, Party. I, <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, so I, I mean, am I, I mean, they like I, I wrote in my newsletter, like, why, why should anyone trust Sam Alito was my one post. And it's basically like so like Sam Alito says this one thing, but like wh why should anybody who's trying to organize their lives around it, like actually believe that? Because that there is this possibility that 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 the court could could change its view because we've been told we've we've been given evidence that precedent doesn't matter yeah like if a 49 year old precedent doesn't matter why would a precedent from 2015 matter yeah absolutely like, yeah. and so i mean i i think that are there arguments that one could make if one was lawyering to explain why Obergefell shouldn't be overturned and why it's different. Yeah, you can make arguments. Um, but like, and if the court wants to side with that, like they could use those arguments. Um, and, but like, if the court doesn't want to, does it need to? No. And I mean, that's unfortunately like a, a very real um, result of sort of using showing that like they can just use brute power 
and just use five votes to make something happen. If even the chief justice is saying, look, you're, I mean, he doesn't disagree with the end result. Like, let's face it, like you read his concurrence, he, 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 he doesn't disagree that eventually Roe should probably be overturned. Yeah. Like his problem was how they went about it. And so like, if even he is saying that, like, it, it's sort of like, wh why should I believe that you told me in three paragraphs of a lengthy opinion that same-sex marriage is going to be protected that you're not going to say otherwise in a year or two. Absolutely. Wow. You know, there, none of this is fun, but thank you so much for taking the time to, to explain this to, to us. And, you know, I'd love to, um, I'd love to be able to share your work with our listeners. T tell people uh, where are all the places we can find you. Yeah. Um, so the main place and where you'll always be able to find everything, um, I'm on Substack, uh, chrisgeidner.substack.com, uh, law dork. Um, and I write about the Supreme Court and law and politics there. Um, I also, you'll find me every once in a while at um, MSNBC. I'm a columnist there, uh, writing for MSNBC Daily. Uh, Bolts, which covers state and local elections and policies. And also at Grid, where I uh, have been since January. Thank you so much, Chris. Thank you so much for listening to Reply Guys. If you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Reply Guys, where we have a catalog of over 25 bonus interviews with renowned writers, journalists, and comedians, with an additional episode uploaded each week. The show is hosted by Kate Willett and me, Julia Clare. Our producer is Genevieve Garrity. Our theme song was performed by Emily Fremgen, who wrote the song with Kate Willett. Our artwork is by Adrian Lobel. If you want to find us on Twitter, we're at Kate Willett with two L's and two T's. And I'm at O Julia Tweets, O-H Julia Tweets. And Twitter is where you can, of course, also find our reply guys. They are always with us. Bernie, take us out. walking that ribbon of highway I saw above me that endless skyway I saw below me that golden valley this land was made for you and me this land is your land this land is my land